This is Yudaha Cohen, Vision Movement, Vision Magazine, and you're listening to the Next Stage Podcast. Israel's new government, our 37th government, uh, was sworn in last week uh, under the leadership of Benjamin Netanyahu, uh, but containing a lot of characters that I think are, uh, on the one hand, very colorful characters, um, very ideological characters. I think we're no longer living in a post-ideological world, uh, which is important to think about, but uh, also scary to a lot of people, very frightening to some of the Israeli public and certainly the international community, and I would imagine many Palestinians as well. Uh, so to unpack how we should relate to this new government, I've invited my friend Rav Mike Foyer onto the show, and uh, I'm not sure we're going to see things 100% eye to eye, we'll probably have some disagreements, but those disagreements will help us uh, help us really get somewhere that would be a, a holistic way of relating to this new government from multiple angles. Rav Mike, welcome to the show. Uh, Shalom Yehuda. Thanks for having me. Thanks for coming on. So let me ask you, what, what are your thoughts? You see this government was sworn in last week. Uh, you and I, I think we're both people who travel in, in different circles. You know, we're part of multiple socio-political camps here in Israel and maybe even abroad sometimes. I'd just like to get your thoughts on uh, how we should relate to this new government and what do you think it means for Israel's trajectory moving forward? Well, there's a couple of questions there about how we should relate and what I think it means. You know, when it comes to the first, how we should relate, you use that language of cultural characters and you pointed out the fact that people are at least uh, looking quite scared. Um, and I have to admit that I'm feeling some fear myself. It comes from uh, a number of directions. One. I just want to own the fact that the optics are challenging to me. The type of statements, uh, a sense of sort of a harshness and my way or the highway, etc. Um, you know, sometimes it just cuts against my soft, happy American grain. And that's a piece that I like to own and put to the side because optics aren't anything in general. And, and certainly here in a region where there's such fundamental challenges and such incredible potential for the Jewish people, I don't think that they should rule the roost. Uh, that being said, however, I also have another fear. Like, this is the first time when there is a, I don't know about majority, but certainly um, across the board sense that this is a right-wing religious government, which has an incredible opportunity uh, to sanctify the name of God, for Kiddush Hashem. But, you know, our mutual friend Yishai Fleischer always points out to me, anytime that there's an opportunity for sanctifying God's name, there's also a tremendous opportunity for Hilul Hashem, for the sort of desecration of God's name. And I have a great concern that the realities of power politics, the sort of nature of the personality clashes, which have already begun and are really inevitable. And yes, the very challenging vision that these, uh, these leaders offer um, might actually desecrate God's name in the eyes of the world. So that's in terms of the question of how we relate. Um, in terms of um, what to expect, of where we're headed, um, I think that we need to wait and see because I'm very frustrated by how the world and Israel as well seem to be jumping on the American bandwagon of saying, well, anyone who's right of center is a threat to democracy. You know, so so I'm not entirely sure, but uh, I will pick apart the pieces as we go. That's that's my first sort of gut answer, how I feel about it. Okay, so I guess for me to express how I feel about it, I'm going to have to uh, challenge some of the terminology you used, which is the terminology a lot of people use. I, I don't blame you, 
Uh, but I think it's unhelpful to use words like religious or right or left or liberal or conservative or secular. I think these words are really words that grew out of another civilization and have deep meaning in that civilization. We can talk about their roots in uh, Greco-Roman thought, in uh, Christian dogma, in the revolutionary transition between feudalism and capitalism. But these words mean something very, very concrete uh, and expressive in Western civilization. And I feel that when they're used in a society like Israel, they're often, they, they often don't do justice to what they're trying to describe. And I think it would be a mistake to just look at this as a, a religious right-wing government in terms of what that would mean in a Western country. Well, how, wait, how's, how's that true? I mean, socially conservative. Um, you know, it is economically, it has, has committed itself to free market principles, staunchly nationalist. I mean, what, what more do you want to make it right-wing and religious? I mean, I appreciate your, your dis-ease with the transposition of the terminology. We've spoken about that before, and we could we could take that apart at a deeper level. But on a simple sense, I mean, what's not right-wing and religious to be seen here? Well, l let's begin with the socioeconomic angle. <clears throat> Even though, yes, uh, Smotrich, I, I don't think he wrote it. The truth is, I, I, I suspect that somebody in Bibi's office actually wrote it. But despite Smotrich's op-ed in the Wall Street Journal last week, where he was... Yeah, right-wing conservative. <laughs> right, right, where he was clearly trying to win over American conservatives, who I think Netanyahu is rightly concerned are going to withdraw their support from his government because this is not a Western conservative government. This is something else. I, I would say this is a lot more similar to the Muslim Brotherhood than it would be Christian evangelicals or the Republican Party or, or anything. In like. what sense? Socioculturally, it's much more mikomi. It's much more uh, rooted in this region. These are people, whether we're talking about Bitzel Smotrich or Itamar Ben-Gvir or Avi Maoz or Aryeh Deri, uh, these are people who are their mentality, their view of the world, uh, you know, th these are guys who don't even speak English. You know, these are people who don't even understand a lot of the socio-political terms or framings that we're discussing. Smotrich probably, you know, th that op-ed in the Wall Street Journal, A, I doubt he even looked at it or asked anyone to explain it to him. I think he just kind of like nodded his head and moved on with his day. But it doesn't reflect the policies he's talking about. I mean, as finance minister, Smotrich is promoting uh, negative taxes for people who are making below a certain income. There are a number of socioeconomic reforms that Smotrich is talking about that would be considered left policies in any European country. And dairy as well. You know, uh, when dairy actually campaigned on a platform of being chevrati, giving people food stamps, actually helping the weaker sectors of society. And let's remember that when we're talking about people like Ben Gvir and Smotrich and Derry, the weaker sectors of society are actually their voters. Like the people who, yes. vote, the people who vote for these parties are the working poor. They do represent, for better or for worse, in parliament, they represent the proletariat of Israel. The one of the reasons, as you said, that the left-right label doesn't really fit so well. I mean, the labor, nominally the, the leader of the left, you know, has its bastions in the uh, sort of uh, the elite society of the coastal plains. Right. We're, we're talking about a country where the term left wing is somehow synonymous with Israel's westernized ruling class, the people who essentially own the means of production, 
own the newspapers, own the big retail chains, own the real estate, etc. Like we're talking about a country where left and right and liberal and conservative and uh, secular and religious just don't mean what they mean elsewhere. And it doesn't fit our culture. So I think it's again, I know that. Okay, I'll, t- I'll take it on the economic plane. Talk to me about nationalist and religious. Mm-hmm. How is this not a nationalist religious government? Well, I, I have a problem with the term religious in general. I think the very idea of us being a religion is part of our colonization. I think that fair, part- but functionally speaking, the sector of society which they're representing are those who seek to, you know, draw more close to the Torah and guide their life by halachic, you know, Jewish legal principles. We could be mifakfeik. We could start to sort of deconstruct the language, and you and I have done this. But I'm talking practically speaking. Right, practically the interests speak- that they represent within our society are what we would call religious interests. That's why there's been a pushback against um, the sort of cutting edge of Western progressivism of the LGBTQ, you know, sexual identity world. There's been um, a concern that uh, the role of women in the public sphere will be constrained and certain rights on the sort of religious freedom for non-Orthodox Jews or competition in the the realm of, of Kashrut supervision. Right. These are, are, are very practical religious issues, whatever we want to talk about being a covenantal people as opposed to simply a religion. No. So I'm how gonna, is this not religious? I'm, yeah, I'm going to disagree with you. I'm going to say it's much more, much more of a question. If you compare this to any other country in the region, it's much more of a friction between an indigenous people's native culture and native way of looking at the world versus cultural imperialism, you know, westernization. Now, that doesn't mean, I, I didn't want to get to this so early, uh, but that doesn't mean that that we, or let's say Smotrich or Ben Gvir or Maoz or their voters or the people who come after them, I don't think it's going to be them, but the people who come after them are going to need to formulate real Jewish answers to LGBTQ issues, uh, to women's issues, but it can't come from an inferiority complex to somebody else's civilization. And that's basically the problem we have. You know, as I was beginning to say before, this notion of us having a religion called Judaism that we either follow or don't follow is part of our colonization. Before the Haskalah, that's not how we saw ourselves. It's not how we saw the world. You know, we had a worldview, like there was a way of looking at the world. We had an identity that included a national component and a territorial component and a legal component and a spiritual component and a ritual component, but it wasn't a religion. It only became a religion when we rebranded ourselves to fit in in places like Germany, France, and the United States. And, you know, obviously- I think it's a little bit less smooth than that, but I'll, I'll, I'll let you get away. Because, I mean, the, the reality is with the destruction of the Mikdash and, and the dispersion, um, the, the religious component of our identity really came to the fore in many ways. But fine, peoplehood, and a, a way of being as opposed to a, a, a religion in the Western modern sense. Okay, but how does that help change the fact that you have an interest group mm-hmm. whose stance on basic civil liberties is fundamentally different than that which we've seen up until now? So listen, we have to remember, we haven't really seen anything yet in substance from our government, but um, these sort of pronouncements and, and, and the attitudes expressed mm-hmm have been quite threatening to both not just the LGBTQ society, right? But um, question of not the protections that non-citizens have gained over the last, um, say, 10 to 20 years 
be they you know economic migrants or infiltrators, whatever you want to call them. Um, other questions of how to relate to the non-Jewish, non-citizens, but the Arabs of the land, the Palestinians who so live at least under our aegis, if not under our sovereignty. There's been some some very strong talk. We're going to have to wait and see what actually will come to be. Right. So let's back up for a second. I look at this really from the perspective of Israel's national development. And from my perspective, this was inevitable. These election results, this government, it was either going to happen this time or the next election or the one after that. There was no way to avoid this just because of the demographic trajectory of Israeli society. This is just what Israel is. And I think that for a long time, we've had a ruling class and we've had spokespeople abroad, like the Hasbara industry, that's attempted to present Israel as kind of as kind of this outpost of Western civilization and Western values in an otherwise sure. savage region. And sure. now, now it's very clear we're not that. I think we can own it and just be like, no, like this is what we are. This is who we are. This is who we've always been. You know, what you've seen until now has just been an identity crisis. And this is actually what we are. And, and, and what is that? Okay. What are we? So let's isolate the religious Zionism list. You know, the combination of Otsma and Noam and Smotrich, right? That gained 14 seats in the elections, right? Mm -hmm. I would say of all the factions running for Knesset, their conception of Jewish identity, their understanding of Jewish history, their understanding of our connection to this land, their understanding of our historic mission are certainly closest to mine, okay? Uh, meaning mm -hmm. there's no other party that I think shares my understanding of Jewish identity. And not just my understanding of Jewish identity, but what I would argue was the broad understanding of all Jews everywhere in the world 500 years ago, 1,000 years ago, 1,500 years ago, 2,000 years ago. Again, the, the goal is, is not to get back to a caricature of our ancestors, uh, but at the same time, you know, these are the people who actually represent our identity and our story in a deep, true way. Now, I want to separate that from where I disagree with them. And that's on a lot of policies and a lot of the rhetoric and a lot of the things that you've already uh, brought up, right? Those things- right, yeah. Which are, by the way, the ways in which they're going to affect our daily life. I mean, Ma their conception of identity may be beautiful in the broad arc of theological history, but, but civil liberties and the ability of American Jewry to make Aliyah are going to be immediate questions. Again, I, it's not just their conception of identity is a beautiful thing. I'm arguing that their conception of identity is a necessary thing. I don't think Israeli society would be capable of advancing, would be capable of moving forward without this moment. You know what? Let me say it like this. I think there's a very nice a metaphor from our Tanakh that I think really, really expresses this well. You know, uh, Mike, that I relate to our Torah as prophecy. I relate to the Tanakh mm. as Nivuah. Um, and the only, you know, we had thousands of prophets walking around this country once upon a time, but the only ones who were really canonized as part of the Tanakh were the ones whose prophecies were relevant for us right now. Sure. So, but you have to know how to read it. It's not like fortune telling. It's not like Nostradamus. You know, um, I think people often make that mistake. Which I've heard Nostradamus is not all, all that easy to read either, but okay. Okay, fair enough. But I think one of the things our Tanakh teaches us is how our national development is meant to play out. When you look at our first three kings, right? You have Shaul, David, and Shlomo. Shaul is essentially Zionism, right? Shaul is primarily concerned with our security, with our economy, with our unity, 
wants Israel to be a strong nation, just like the other nations in the world. And that's great, but that's Zionism, essentially. David is like the national religious. I think David, uh, you could say, Smotrich represents the David force, the Jews often living in the West Bank, who are going to the best combat units, who are willing to give their lives, who are willing to jump on grenades and say Shema Yisrael to save their platoon, guys coming out of places like Eli and Atzmona. That's David. And they want Israel to be not just a nation like other nations, they want Israel to be a uniquely Jewish nation. And they also want a temple, but they can't achieve the temple. They're not capable. David is not capable of building the temple. Shlomo represents what I would call Hebrew universalism. You know, Shlomo is very much standing on the shoulders of David. Uh, he's maybe sharing an ideological worldview with David, um, but he's much more universalist. Uh, he's not fighting the wars. In fact, we learned that uh, not only did Israel fight no wars in the time of Shlomo, but uh, our sages teach us that when Shlomo reigned, no nation anywhere in the world fought wars, meaning that the global situation was much more harmonious than what we've seen before or since. And Shlomo is able to build the temple because Shlomo is focused more on what we have to give to humanity and how we're going to engage with the rest of the world in a positive way and be a leader, you know, but obviously not in a coercive way. And what we see happening now in Israeli society is a broad shift from Shaul to David. That's what's essentially happening, that there's a shift from Shaul to David but what needs to happen and what I don't see happening yet is for the people who are already David, and that includes myself, we need to transition to Shlomo. We need to stay ahead of the camp. And if you look at, for example, just to give a small example of something we see very clearly in Tanakh that barely anybody uh, recognizes, the last major political act of David before he transitions to Shlomo is that he recognizes and tries to correct the crimes of Zionism against the Palestinians, right? The crimes of Shaul against the Givonim, the Gibeonites, right? And that's what we need. We need, it can't come from Yair Lapid, and it can't come from Benny Gantz, and it can't come from Mirav Michaeli. If somebody who votes for Yair Lapid actually were to confront the Palestinian story, they would just become anti-Israel. They would just lose their Jewish identity. Listen, we see this. But if Smotrich and Ben Gvir and Maoz and the people who voted for them, they, look, the potential that I see in these, you know, scary David people is that they actually are able, again, it doesn't mean they're doing it. And again, this is a process and we have to be mindful of the process and how it works and its pace, etc. But David, the Smotrich voter, the Maoz voter, the Ben Gvir voter, the dairy voter is far more capable of actually confronting what Zionism did to the Palestinians and working towards correcting it without losing their Jewish identity, without losing their commitment to Eretz Israel, without losing their commitment to Torah. And that is, from my perspective, what we need in order to move forward. The goal is not to surrender or retreat because we realize we did some things wrong. The goal is for us to figure out how we can do things right now in a way that advances both us and the Palestinians. And the only way that can happen is for the Jews deeply, deeply rooted in our identity, in our national story, in our homeland, in our Torah, in our native way of life, in the way our ancestors looked at the world, for those Jews 
to be able to look at what Zionism did to the Palestinians and to try to correct it. And that's exactly what the Tanakh is telling us. Yeah, and listen, I, I hear it. And, and, and I actually agree with you on that point. I want to come back to it. But before I do, I want to see your metaphor and raise you one, right? The, the uh, sort of three kings of Israel are a powerful construct, but I would argue we're not at that stage. I would say that where we're at, if you want to sort of map history on Tanakh, is that Zionism was Joshua, was Yehoshua. Right, in that in that period of conquest, the re-entry vehicle into land. And we've been stuck in the era of the judges for just as long as Israel was before. And that's my concern today. It's true, ultimately, the chaos and the devolution of centralized government and, yes, the borderline civil war of the Book of Judges did, in the end, allow for the emergence of a unified kingdom. But my, my concern is that, no, we're not at the stage of malhut, of kingship that you're speaking about, and that what's really bothering me is that the personalities that we're dealing with are not of the quality that we require you know I, it, it's noteworthy to me and this is where a lot of my my real political concern comes from. i'm trying to stay grounded in the reality i see today right a lot of my political concern is look how much pressure has to be put legislative you know sort of um legal pressure in order to fit these people into the system look how desperately benjamin netanyahu needs support in order to ward off the legitimate or illegitimate threats he has. I'll give a specific example. I think that the Supreme Court has dug its own grave and is about to lie in it when it comes to judicial reform. I think it's a disaster if we have a legislature that's able to overturn a Supreme Court if it only has 61 votes. It's a recipe for a ridiculous form of government in which each government completely reconstructs the structures of law as it takes power. Right. And 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 with all due respect to um, the ministers in charge, some of them have been actually convicted of financial fraud. What are they doing leading our country? You know, and, and I, I have a real concern that, that, that the power politics and problematic personalities, which are the hallmark, one of the hallmarks of the leadership of Book of Judges, even though it was able, they were able to wield real force and even to save israel in times of danger nonetheless they they threatened to tear the people apart and last but but not least i agree with you that that um that the sort of secular centrist left i know i'm using those terms again but the year your lapid you know sort of uh vision lacks any grounding in jewish identity and the sort of thin nationalist israeli identity um explodes when they confront the very complex reality of our relationship with the palestinians but I don't necessarily want to sacrifice personal liberties and, and, and create a society which has to line up behind its leader in, in ways in which, as an, as an American, I'll just say it as like it is, are just not my ideal of government in order to achieve that. I don't know what you're seeing. I don't feel any pressure to line up behind our leader. You know, I have my criticisms of Netanyahu. I have my criticisms of Smotrich and Ben Gvir and, and everybody else. I'm not feeling, you know, I haven't. You, you haven't seen the way in which Bibi has consistently surrounded himself with loyalists and 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 systematically eliminated real challenge and critique from within his own leading party. You missed that. Like, over for the last who? 10 years? Who would who would you say was a candidate, uh, a potential leader? Oh, we, we 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 can't say because he picked them all early and drove them out. Why is it that the leader of every center to right party, other than Likud, at some point worked for Bibi? <laughs> no, it's a, it's, a, it's, it's a consistent pattern, and he he tends to surround himself with people who sort of uphold his personality. 
And I have a deep concern about with the fact that we have no constitution. And this is the other piece, the no social contract. This is the glaring gap, which as far as I can tell, we'll never have real Malfu, real sovereignty until we have enough of a social fabric that can come together around a social contract that can agree upon structures of government and society, which will be the rules of the game going forward. And right now, they don't have that, which is what I meant when I said that the Supreme Court dug its own grave because they tried to create one on their own, but they represent a very narrow sectoral interest within our society, right? And so therefore, they created this conflict. Right. So in terms of Netanyahu, I, I've never voted for the man. I never plan to vote for the man. I have a lot of critiques. But I do see him as somebody who genuinely works towards the national interest. Not only does, does the media try to portray him as a self-serving politician, I think he actually contributes to that. Uh, and I think it's, it's brilliant. Um, Perhaps he absolutely is. No, but being who he is, I, I think that Netanyahu intentionally creates a lot of ambiguity as to whether or not he's an ideologue or he's just like a political animal. And I think the reason for that is very simple. He doesn't want the Americans to take him out. If he was, who, who clear, thinks that Bibi is an ideologue? I think he's an ideologue. I, I think he's a deep ideologue. Driven, driven by what ideal? Eretz Israel, his conception of what Jewish national interests are. I don't agree with the conception 100%, but I think that he is an ideologue driven by the ideas of his father. I'd say revisionist Zionism. I, I think he sees himself as a revisionist Zionist who is doing everything in his power to achieve the vision of Zev Jabotinsky uh, and Herzl, etc., through his steering of the state. And it's complicated. And I think the number one threat, and I think to his credit, he's the uh, the only prime minister in recent history that I think is a conscious of this and actually tries to resist it. I mean, I, to be fair, I think there were prime ministers from like the Labour Party who were conscious of it, but didn't, or, or even Kadima who were conscious of it, but didn't try to resist it. I think Bibi is aware, um, and I think he's definitely dropped hints over the years to this. Uh, what comes to mind most glaringly is his speech when uh, Naftali Bennett became prime minister. I think the the speech that Bibi gave then, uh, I don't remember what he said exactly, but it was like, it suddenly clicked for me. It was obvious to me that this is a guy who just spent 12 years protecting us from Obama and Trump and really saw that, like, like really understands that the number one threat to the state of Israel today is US imperialism. And, and again, he's not Shamir. He tried to be Shamir his first term in the 90s. And uh, for lack of a better term, he got his ass handed to him by Bill Clinton. But I think that what Bibi figured out is that the way for him to be able to handle the Americans, right? He's not Yitzhak Shamir. He's not Fidel Castro. You know, he's not Che Guevara. He's Bibi Netanyahu. The way for him to handle the Americans is to say yes to them. Yes, yes, yes. And then go and do everything quietly to make their plans impossible. And that's what he did. <laughs> and you know what? That's better than a guy like Naftali Bennett, who uh, I remember was on the news. He came back from a meeting with Biden and he meets with his security cabinet and he expresses shock, actual shock at the fact that Biden is staunchly opposed to any Jewish building in the West Bank. Like, how is a guy like Bennett, who presented himself to us as the leader of the struggle for Eretz Israel for years before he even entered politics. How is somebody like that completely unaware that the number one threat to Jewish life in Judea and Samaria is U.S. foreign policy? No, I hear it. It's gross ignorance. But let's circle back to this government. Okay. So, you know, beyond the sort of broad um, ideological sweep of time, what is it that you expect from this government that you're excited about? 
that you're looking forward to? I didn't say I was excited. Um, what I'm worried about, I'll tell you what, because I also have concerns. I know that you have more concerns than I do, so I'm, you know, I'm defending. But here is my concern. My concern is that you have two major forces in Israeli society. They have their satellites, but let's say the two major forces, we've spoken about this before, and there are plenty of articles at Vision Magazine kind of laying out this framework, which I think is much better for understanding our society, the tribal identities, Israel's tribal political identities. But the two major tribes are Yosef and Yehuda. Yosef is the Yair Lapid. We can say Mashiach ben Yosef is when the talents of Yosef, the forces of Yosef, are directed towards Jewish liberation. Um, Zionism completed its revolutionary role, and what happened was the Zionists, they slid back towards their assimilationist impulse, right? So you could say this force of Yosef, which really is an assimilationist force to a certain extent, but the part of... Well, it's about Israel finding its place amongst the nations. Right, he was a tzaddik because he was able to hold out on being Israel amongst the nations. But it's primarily about finding that place amongst the nations, and therefore assimilation is a is a seemingly viable path. Right. So I'd say this just to make it very clear for listeners: Yosef is the part of our identity that's very good at managing the material world, very much like you said, wants to find Israel's place among the nations, but is also very easily influenced by. The nations uh, and sure. we, we see that very clearly in the first temple period with the uh, kingdom of israel versus the kingdom of yehuda yehuda is the force that's very focused on what's unique about israel our identity our torah our uh, way of looking at the world so you have now in israeli society the force of western liberalism which we can call yosef and the force of jewish nationalism which we can call yehuda and this new government obviously represents Yehuda. You know, there's some Yisachar there, there's some Shimon and Levi there, but it's for the most part, you know, the sons of Leah. And what appears to be happening is the force of Yehuda is winning over the force of Yosef. Okay? And that, to me, is not the goal. If Yosef wins over Yehuda, we end up just being like a European nation-state. If the force of Yehuda wins over Yosef, we might end up becoming a Jewish Iran. The goal is for these two forces to learn to work together. But in order for these forces to work together properly, Yuda needs to be in the driver's seat. So I think that instead of the uh, fear-mongering of the Yosef forces, and the Yosef forces include Yair Lapid, who I think has been extremely, extremely irresponsible in his rhetoric since the elections, bordering on... Um, I, I mean, to be like Netanyahu actually replaced all the drivers of his motorcade. You know, the fact that, that Bibi yeah. was such a step indicates to me that he has a real concern over political violence, over somebody trying to take him out. You know, and I think that this rhetoric of the state is about to be destroyed and we need to act now is extremely irresponsible. Um, it's extremely dangerous. And I think it's also politically self-serving. Right. It's politically self-serving. You know, I think they couldn't win the election, but they can sure whip people into a frenzy. Right. And it doesn't hurt them that they have the media on their side. Meaning, you know, the same uh, Israeli media that worked so hard to legitimize the Bennett-Lapid government, which was essentially a plutocracy, with the exception of Ram, it was just... A, oh, yeah, happy technocrats. Right, the, the parties with the most wealthy voters in the country all getting together and forming a government, regardless of how they feel about territorial issues, cultural issues, whatever, they just represent the rich. It was a government of the and rich. And regardless, by the way, of how the voters felt about it, since none of the voters voted for that combination. <laughs> right. 
And that same media that worked so hard to legitimize that government, partially because they know that's the only way that Yosef can maintain power, they have not stopped demonizing this new formation. And again, like I have criticisms and I have concerns about our new government, but I think the level of demonization, the level of vilification, the level of fear mongering is so dangerous and so irresponsible that it really pushes me into a position of becoming almost like a mouthpiece for this government. Because I feel that somebody needs to balance this in English. You know, somebody needs oh, to yes. get out there and say, wait a minute, this isn't so bad. But it is a government that's more deeply rooted in our people's indigenous identity, view of the world, understanding of self. And I think that that's ultimately a good thing. And every revolutionary trend, first of all, I'm also grateful that Israel was able to get to this point without any violence because that wasn't always guaranteed. You know, I think we were both here during the struggle for Gush Katif. Oh, yeah. we, we saw that Yosef really used the media, the security forces, the judicial establishment to crush all opposition to that policy. And I, I really- oh, It was only the righteousness of the leadership and the people of Gush Katif that prevented violence. Right, and, and you know, even though some of us might have been very critical of certain Rabbanim at the time, 17, 18 years later, I'm actually grateful that those leaders held us back and prevented us from bringing this country to civil war because the other side actually wanted it. That's something we don't... Oh, they were begging for it. If they're calling for it in the streets now. Right. And, and that's part of the problem. We, you know, the Yehuda force is very committed to Jewish unity and um, mutual responsibility. We don't realize that the Yosef force is not always there. Although I think one of the features of Yosef, just like one of the features of Shaul, was Jewish unity. One of the main features of Yosef is that he's looking for his brothers, as he says in, in Parshat Vayeshev. And, uh, and even Herzl, who, you know, Rav Kook uh, eulogized as representing a spark of Mashiach ben Yosef, um, you know, he ended the first Zionist Congress in Basel by saying brothers have found each other again. I mean, the essence of Zionism really was our unity. And, and I think that's part of what we need to do right now, those of us who are actually in the Yuda camp have to recognize not just Yosef's material contributions, but also his spiritual contributions. I think that's what Yosef needs to feel validated by us. Yosef needs to understand we don't just look at them as those suckers who like built the state, built the army, built the economy, and now we're taking over. But to actually recognize that Yosef corrected something in our identity. Yosef corrected something spiritually for the people of Israel. And that really is the fact that Zionism as a movement, you know, there's a very dialectical relationship between the Haskalah, the Jewish Enlightenment and the Zionist movement. But what Zionism essentially did, even though in, in some ways we can argue it was an outgrowth of the Haskalah, at the same time, it really challenged the Haskalah's rebranding of Jewish identity. The Zionist movement came and said, we are a people, Jews in Hungary, Jews in Poland, Jews in Morocco, Jew, you know, Jews in Mesopotamia, we are one people uh, and we have a common land and we have a common identity. Obviously, a thousand years ago, we all believed that. But in the wake of the Haskalah, there were many Jews, including great Rabbanim. Remember, like what we call Orthodox Judaism is also a colonized version of our identity. You know, the Orthodox Jews might have protected the ritual and legal components of our identity, but they really dropped the ball on the national and territorial components. On some level, they were completely assimilated into the national cultures of where they were, you know, Jews of, you know, sorry, Germans of Mosaic persuasion, Orthodox Mosaic right. persuasion, but, you know, Germans nonetheless, sure. 
And that's why all these movements need to be understood. You know, when we, you know, obviously one of the things that I always push for is for Israel to have a post-colonial conversation on a national level. You know, that needs to take into consideration what happened to us, again, you know, to understand that the goal isn't for the Orthodox Jews to win against the Reform and the Conservative, but for us to realize that all three on some level are expressions of our colonization. And again, that doesn't mean we need to go back to what we were um, you know, in ancient times, you don't need to ride camels because, you know, our ancestors rode camels. Uh, but we do need to understand what happened to us and then make a conscious decision what we want to put back and what we don't. We need to understand how our identity has changed over thousands of years. And, you know, in, in what instances did our identity change or our worldview change or our practices change or whatever as a result of internal cultural evolution, which is normal, it happens and it happens to us too, versus external coercion, right? And by the way, when it, when it comes to this question, I would categorize any efforts by Jews in the diaspora to better fit in with their host nations because of the trauma of not fitting in previously as external coercion, even if it's coming from us. Like, like I would say that's still external coercion to a certain extent. But we need to understand what happened to us and then make a, you know, make informed decisions as to what is still, you know, what, what is better off the way it is, what needs to change. Um, I don't think the Zionist, Yosef, Shaul leadership is capable of having that conversation. I do believe the Yuda leadership, uh, you know, the leadership we see in this current government is more capable, but they're not thinking this way. The question is, how do we get these ideas to them? They can do it. They're capable of doing it. They uh, have the potential, but it doesn't seem like, forget the will, it doesn't even seem like they have the understanding that this is a necessary step forward. So let's let's look at that sort of um, relationship to diaspora jury because this is one where I really uh, am of two minds. I mean, I agree with you as well. As much as I'm, I, I'm, we're, we're doing the push and pull here. I'm disgusted by the sort of not just the the inflammatory rhetoric from the opposition here in our country. And I was just scanning through to see if I could pull a good quote, um, and and there's nothing better than seeing Ehud Barak. Right. Complaining about, you know, the sort of government showing signs of fascism. Right. And, and calling for a mass nonviolent revolt. I mean, if anyone was ever a failed prime minister <laughs> whose actions define negotiation under fire, it's just a little bit hard to swallow. So so the and, and like you said, the 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 the, the recklessness a, a, of the rhetoric isn't accidental. I really think that that the um, the again, I'll use those terms, the center left, which has really failed to lead the country for some time, recognizes that on a, on a broad based electoral question, they have dwindling support in our country. But it's more than that. It's this childishness of, of if we don't play the game like I want, I'm going to take my ball and go home. And this is where I, I, I really kind of um, want to push back on American Jewry, who, who have always seen Israel to some degree as a religious Disney world, where mm -hmm. they should be able to come and, and do Judaism like they like to do it and have their uh, sort of American creature comforts and then go home, home being America, right? Um, even though it was a visit to the homeland. And so now there are certain questions coming up, for instance, the, the law of return. Let's touch that for a minute, right? People are unaware that um, the law of return is that which allows Israel's immigration policy to be different than many other countries, although there are others that have this notion, but that basically any Jew can claim instant quote-unquote citizenship even though it's <laughs> Israel being what it is it may be instant but it's slow um 
but it includes definitions of Jews which don't reflect the historic, legal, biblical tradition of Am Yisrael, right? The so-called grandchild clause. And there's a big fight over that right now um, for any number of reasons, but it threatens the ability of American Jewry to feel that they actually have a place here. What do you say about that? I have what to say, but I'm curious what your thoughts are. Well, again, that, that makes the list, just like African asylum seekers and Palestinians and LGBTQ people, I think. Right. These are civil civil liberty issues in, well, in, in the minds of a, of a Westerner. Yeah, I don't know. I, I, I guess I'm not enough of a Westerner, despite the fact that I lived the first uh, almost 22 years of my life in New York City. I, I guess I'm much more of a New Yorker than I am an American. Yeah, but notice none of that list touches you directly. No, last I checked, no. Don't ignore that fact. That's an important distinction to so just keep in mind oh. when when thinking about it. Yes, although the larger challenge, but well, before I get there, let me just say again, people who identify as Jews, but are not Jews according to how we've defined that for thousands of years, should be on the list of people that an Avi Maoz and a Bitzel Smotrich need to build sensitivity towards. Just like the Palestinian, just like the African asylum speaker, just like the LGBTQ people. Uh, what a could have, should have, but they're definitely not. Right, no, and why not? And, and why not? Uh, I mean, all the- Why not? That's that's my question, why not? Why not? I, I think partially because it's not politically expedient right now. Because there's a lot of tribal fear amongst traditional Jews of every stripe, self-included, that we're going to get overwhelmed by a world of non-Jews. Not just that. I think that the problem is until now, this is the challenge, but this is a, a great challenge. And I think it's a great challenge that we need to rise up to. If not, Bitsela Smotrich, then you and me. L like, for example, my wife right now, she just started her post-colonial Jewish feminism fellowship. You know, she selected five candidates to be part of this, like, I don't know if it's six months or a year, you have to ask uh, Sharona, but she's got this fellowship going where fellows are applying post-colonial feminist theory to Jewish women's issues and trying to create a form of female empowerment that doesn't drive women into conflict between their Jewish and female identities. Um, Fantastic. That's an important project. And from what I understand, uh, the fellowship is meant to also, you know, touch on LGBTQ issues as well, because that's something we, meaning the Yudah people, haven't developed a position for. Meaning what we've done up till now is we've either accepted or rejected the Western liberal answer to these issues. And what we need to do is develop Jewish answers. Now, let's be honest, the people who are now in power have, you know, until now, felt threatened by all these issues, whether it's Palestinians. I mean, you know, there's no doubt in my mind that uh, Smotrich uh, and a Ben Gvir relates to Palestinians as a population deeply committed to slaughtering all the Jews. And mm -hmm. the only, until now, we've just created these kind of like military structures of control to prevent them from slaughtering the Jews. But that's a Band-Aid solution. We need to figure out something else, right? I, and I think that it's not without evidence, meaning that's not a position that's 100% wrong. I think it's it's missing a lot. I mean, I think it totally misses why Palestinians would even want to fight against us. Um, but definitely the experiences exist. You know, a guy like Smotrich who lives in Kidumim and comes from Betel, um, I, I'm sure he has memories of the second intifada where, you know, where Palestinians were shooting at us on the roads and blowing up our buses. And again, if we don't know that we've done anything wrong, if we don't realize that we're oppressing them systemically on a daily basis, then they just want to kill the Jews.
if anything, the opposite. We think we're being humane. We think that instead of slaughtering their villages, we create these kind of uh, systems. Structures of power and control. Right. And and we think we're being humane by doing that and civilized by doing that and, and we're better than them. You were there, but that's the illusion that they live within and that's part of what concerns me. Right. I mean, listen, the opposition didn't live within its own illusions that concerned me. They, they were actually more invested in that. I think that guys like Benny Gantz or Ehud Barak are far more invested in the, you know, security structures in the West Bank and the wall and all those things than a guy like Smotrich or Ben Gvir. I could actually see somebody like Smotrich advocating for that wall coming down, whereas I couldn't see that from Benny Gantz. Well, real, real annexation, real sovereignty requires the wall to come down. Who puts a wall up in the middle of their own country? Right, exactly. Yeah. So I think that, you know, for, for these people, I think what they need to understand, and I don't think it's so hard to contemplate, is that, fine, you want to reject the Western liberal answer on LGBTQ issues? Fine. Formulate a Jewish answer. You want to prevent Palestinians? Yeah, but the present Jewish answers that we're getting are dismissive at best. Right, because we haven't done the work. Okay, so then, then let's talk practically speaking. You know, for me personally and for anyone else listening, what is the work? What do you think to be the practical steps that myself or anyone else listening could start taking today mm -hmm. in order to try to tap the potential of this political moment? Well, are you talking about the political moment or we're limiting it to LGBTQ issues? No, the political moment. I mean, the LGBTQ issues, to be honest with you, I, I think it's a bit of a red herring, meaning it's like people are so inflamed about this issue as if it's the most important issue facing humanity. I just, I profoundly disagree, except insofar as that it represents a clash between sort of the absolutist stance of personal liberties and the more sort of collectivist stance of, um, you know, national identities and, and, and other sort of uh, collective values. But it, it's not the most important issue on the table. What do about this political moment? In this political moment, I think, first of all, what I would have liked to see, and again, this is, you know, my wish list is what it is, and, and uh, I have to be realistic, but I would have very yeah, much... Tell us what to do, or what uh, you're going to do. Uh, what am I going to do? I'm going to actually try to meet with uh, some of these new ministers, and I'm going to try to present certain ideas, and I'm going to try to tell them what's in it for them, and how us achieving their aspirations because I know what they're I, I share their aspirations you know I, I think even more than you I'm very much part of that community like I teach in their yeshivot I send my kids to their schools I've been living you know since I've been in this country you know uh, 21 years ago since getting here 21 years ago with the exception of when I was in the army but even because I served in Netzach I was also kind of part of that world you know I've been living whether it's in East Jerusalem whether it's in uh, different mountaintops in the uh, West Bank whether it's in Kirat Moshe whether it's in Beitel like I've been living in their communities I'm part of that world like I'm very much part of that world and so mm -hmm. I think that what I can do practically is try to um, try to spread certain ideas, but try to bring certain things to their attention. You know, it's, it's a paradigm shift. It's hard. It, it, it is hard. And I, I know because I've been doing it for a while. And there are people who get it right away. There are people who, who are really the type of thinkers who can right away see something new and, and appreciate uh, a chidush. But there are also people who are just very resistant to anything that makes us weak, anything that makes us you know, compromise on what we've been fighting for and trying to get back to for thousands of years, meaning that that's part of the problem. This is true for Israeli and Palestinian society, by the way, that to even understand the other is uh, often a sign of weakness or treason uh, on both sides. And yeah. uh, 
And I think that, but I think that now that you have guys like Smotrich and, and uh, Maoz, I think, by the way, when it comes to Palestinian issues, I think Maoz is an easier conversation. I, I don't believe that Avi Maoz sees the Palestinians in the same way that Smotrich and Ben-Gvir do. I think um, on that issue, he's probably more flexible and has more room to see what I'd be presenting to him. But on other issues, less. Right? Sure. But I think the Yosef people who are afraid need to accept the fact that this is where Israel's going. There's no way to stop it unless you want to throw democracy out the window completely. There's no way to stop Israel from... Which, you know, it, it, it is being entertained in broader and broader circles today. Democracy is not an intrinsic value. It's a, a means to an end sort of achieving, you know, national social vision. Well, it depends what you mean by democracy. I think the problem is most Israelis, especially of the Yosef persuasion, especially in the westernized ruling class, have defined democracy as essentially westernization. Being like the West is being a democratic country. Well, when I say democracy, I mean both substantive and, and procedural. I mean, there's a, a way in which government is managed, it's procedural, but also substantive. What I think of as classic liberal values, where there's a, a heavy emphasis on, on personal liberty. There is an attempt to mute the power of government over the individual. And when push comes to shove, there's an airing on on the side of a, of a hands-off posture. Well, the way I would define democracy is any system of government that empowers people to influence the structures they live under. That's any system. No. I mean, empowers is a, is a very vague word. I mean, that you, you can't just, you can't just flip a term on its head. <laughs> I mean, uh, like a, 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 a technocratic government that gives you no freedom to choose, but is more than happy to pull you continually to think what your opinions are on policy would then be a, a democratic government in your definition. No, no, I mean, you just we, said it gives empowers its people to influence. So like, OK, we're 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 listening. We want your opinion. We think you even have you know, substantial, you know, not real. I, I mean, but, but you don't but you don't get to actually choose who makes make decisions. No, but I mean, really. Uh, and I'd even argue that we're not as democratic as we could be here in the state of Israel. But no, it, it, but, but if we're going to be a democracy, if Israel is going to be a democratic society, then we have to understand that this is what Israel is. Like I actually argued that Smotrich should not be the finance minister and should not be the defense minister. I wanted to see Smotrich as the foreign minister for two reasons. Number one, I think it would be more honest. I think that Smotrich as the public face, the international face of the state of Israel would just be telling the world what we really are, what we really are transforming into. This is us, you know, take it or leave it. Um, but also I think that one of the problems with a guy like Smotrich is that he has no understanding of the world beyond our borders at all. Uh, probably also true. Great. I don't think the foreign ministry is the place you need to get that experience. Well, I think uh, I think that's exactly where he would get the experience. Let, let him take it. Let him take a year off and travel. I mean, that's that's kind of a ridiculous statement. I mean, but, the responsibility that it comes with that level of governmental representation is not a place to learn the ropes about the world. I'm actually not worried about the damage. Again, like I said, it would be a more honest representation of who we are on the one hand. On the other hand, it would train him. It would teach him what the world is actually like. I'll give you an example. Right now, I think Netanyahu understands what the world is like. Oh, he's, yeah, he's, one of, he's a mover and shaker in what the world is like. So as I said before, I think Netanyahu is somebody who, who really sees the U.S. as the primary antagonist in this chapter of Jewish history. Uh, by the way, if you read the book, The Prime Ministers by Yudav Nair, you see the same thing. And I don't think the author even intended it, but if you really read through that book, you'll, which is a very G-rated understanding of Israeli history, you know, I, I have mixed reviews, but one thing that becomes very, very clear, no matter what administration uh, the author was working for, 
the primary antagonist was always the United States. Like, how are we going to yes. deal? That comes across very clearly. I think Netanyahu knows that. I don't think Smotrich does. And I think that if Netanyahu were to say to Smotrich, we can't do this thing you want to do because that will give the Americans an excuse to do X to us, or that will give the Americans an argument for pushing this policy on us. Smotrich has no clue if Netanyahu is telling the truth or not. And that's part of the problem. And, and I think that was part of the problem with their coalition negotiations, that Smotrich just doesn't understand whether this stuff is true or not. He has a suspicion that Bibi is lying to him because he sees Bibi as a... At a certain point, consistent behavior. <laughs> but at the same time, he just doesn't know. Like, it's hard to explain to him. He, he's an ideologue, Smotrich, and he's deeply committed to his values and to his political program, but he doesn't know that, you know, it's something, you know, Eitan Haber, he was the bureau chief, if I'm not mistaken. He he ran Rabin's administration, the, the second Rabin administration. And uh -huh. um, and he, you know, he has this piece in Times of Israel where he basically says, like, when people get to the prime minister's office, they see something they didn't see before, you know, that everything comes down to what the Americans will or won't let us do. That's what it's all about. And that was, for a long time, actually, the argument, like during the Oslo years, that was the argument of the Labour Party. That was the argument of Rabin and Perez and, and all of them. They were saying it very clearly. And a lot of the Likud types were, and I see it today, by the way, with some of our mutual friends as well. A lot of, you know, a lot of Jewish nationalists really believe that we are just not assertive enough in speaking up for our own rights. And therefore, we can't expect the Americans to be more... Zionist than the government of Israel. And, and that was Jabotinsky's position too with the British. Jabotinsky believed that if we were to assert ourselves more boldly, the British would understand our position and have to compromise with us. Uh, whereas Yair came along and said, no, there's no such thing. Uh, there's a fundamental conflict of interests between us and the British. And the only way for us to advance our interests is to break free, is to free our country from them. Uh, and so I think that Netanyahu is one of the few leaders of the national camp who actually sees, you know, the role that the U.S. empire plays in Israeli politics. Okay. Uh, I'm, I'm still feeling a little bit adrift on what we practically, those of us who won't necessarily be speaking to uh, government ministers can be doing. But one thing I definitely am taking away here is that there's a political moment happening, which is an opportunity to not only deepen our self-definition, but um, to redefine our relationship with the world power of the United States. And I think that that perhaps needs to be seen as lying behind much of the rhetorical battle, which is playing out in more superficial areas like the media. Mike, th this is a revolutionary moment, even though we, you know, Baruch Hashem, we got here, we arrived here without bloodshed. This is a revolutionary moment. Revolution is messy. It's ugly. This might be ugly, you know, it could be we're going to have 10 or 20 years of, you know, scary, ultra-nationalist, Yuda-style government, and it's going to make half the country, well, that half is going to keep shrinking, so, but, but yeah. a sensible minority of the country feel really uncomfortable and really disconnected from Israel, uh, and it might make diaspora Jews feel really disconnected. But again, my point is all revolutionary transitions are a little bit ugly and messy, and this is definitely not as messy as it could have been. I'm grateful that, you know, it's been bloodless. 
And I think that the focus, I know you like to focus on what we can do right now, but I think what we need to keep in mind, no matter what we do right now, is that this is in the scheme of things, in the broader scheme of things, in terms of Israel's national development, in terms of this broader project of Jewish liberation and coming back to ourselves and, and being what we're meant to be on the world stage. This is not only a, a positive thing, but a necessary thing. We have to move in this direction in order for us to arrive at Shlomo, in order for us to arrive at Hebrew universalism. Because again, until now, it's been a conflict between Western liberal ideas and Jewish national ideas, Jewish particularist ideas. And it appears the Jewish particularist camp has won out against the Western liberal camp. But ultimately, that's not the goal. Ultimately, the Jewish particularist camp needs to feel comfortable and confident enough to not be reacting and not just be pushing back against cultural imperialism and attempts to westernize our society and a two-state solution and all those things. We need to have the confidence to develop uniquely Jewish ideas when it comes to all of these issues that are, you know, you define them as civil liberty issues. It's not like uh, Israel w was conducting marriages between, you know, same-sex couples a year ago. Maybe people were hopeful that the Bennett-Lapid government would have brought us there, but that's not, that's not the society. That wouldn't reflect where the people are at. And I think that we need to be honest. That, that's important to me, that we need to be honest about what Israel society is and where Israel society is going and try to make sure it develops in a positive direction, but as us, like not as a an outpost of the West, uh, not as Rhodesia, but really as um, a uniquely Jewish society that's proud of who we are and doesn't feel like we have to apologize when our values or our identity doesn't measure up to what's politically correct in 2023. Well, I think that that's a pretty strong uh... A pretty strong final message to end on. Mike, thank you so much for being with me. Thanks for taking the time to speak with me. It's always a pleasure. Always an engaging conversation. Thank you for having me. If listeners are interested in supporting these ideas, you can go to visionmag.org and click donate on the menu bar up top. Uh, this show is completely listener funded. We don't want that to change. We very much appreciate your support and you would be partnering in developing the ideas that are necessary for bringing the Jewish people forward in this chapter of our people's story. Yeah. Anyone interested in checking out the show notes of this episode, you can go to visionmag.org backslash the next stage 90.